0: Everyone Crossroads is your show all about nonprofits and the people that make the mission happen. I'm Marjorie Moore, Executive Director of MindsEye, and my personal mission is to make nonprofits stronger by identifying and fixing the rubs that so often come up between people in the mission. And we have my co-host, Natalie Jablonski, the Nonprofit Ninja.
1: Yep, specializing in helping nonprofits maximize their time, talent, and resources to achieve organizational greatness. Well, in the spirit of the baseball season, we'd love to root for our favorite team. Now, Marjorie, you and I kind of disagree on what our favorite teams are, but today I think we can agree we that everyone's rooting for the favorite team that everybody loves, and that's our nonprofit organizations. So here we, have exactly. our, here we have our guest today to help us make sure that all of our nonprofits are covering their bases is Jen Vasha. She is a principal at Brown Smith Wallace LLP in St. Louis, Missouri. Jen, thanks for being here. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Well, sure. Thanks, Marjorie and Natalie, for having me. Um, As you said, I am with Brownsmith Wallace. I've actually been in public accounting for a little over 15 years and actually specializing with nonprofit work for over 10 years. So my personal mission is actually to keep those nonprofits uh, on the good side of regulators. Um, everybody that runs a nonprofit is very passionate about what they do, so my goal is to take away some of that worry from the regulation side and let them focus their exuberance on the passion of their mission rather than worrying about what the government needs them to do. So. Try to keep them out of trouble, and we're going to cover some of those things today, so it'd be great. That's fantastic, and I can Excellent. imagine
1: that right now everyone is just like me and Marjorie with your pen and paper out because lots of notes probably to cover, and of course, as always, we'll make sure that we have show notes in there to get you where you need to go. But Marjorie, where do you even want to start with, with something, a topic this exciting?
0: So I guess I want to start at the basics. Um, what do
2: what do we need what do do we need to what do we need to document what do we need to keep
0: what let's start there let's talk documentation
2: absolutely and that's documentation is actually the perfect place to start because if you think about the real estate world, world, their mantra is location, location, location. Right. And for a nonprofit, their mantra really should be documentation, documentation, documentation. <laughs> because without that documentation, you can get yourselves into trouble and not even realize it. So it's very important that they remember their basics and be sure they cover all of their bases when it comes to their documentation because that's really going to provide a lot of answers for donors. It's going to provide the guidance that they need to follow and that's going to keep them on the safe side of those regulatory agencies to make sure that they're following their mission and doing what they're actually allowed to and what they're supposed to be doing. So that documentation is, is very key. I always get a
1: lot of questions when it comes to documentation on what do we need to keep and for how long. Can you address that a little bit?
2: Absolutely. So there are certain things from a documentation perspective that you should keep forever. And we usually call those your permanent records. And then there are other things. Oh, back to that- high school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Only in those permanent records, it was usually the bad stuff that you didn't want to have around. This is the stuff that you need to have around, because this is going to keep you out of trouble, whereas that perm you record can, in high school...
1: You can tell that Marjorie spent some time outside the principal's <laughs> office. That's what I hear. <laughs> no.
2: Well, hopefully we don't have any flashbacks in this game. No, no. And we want to keep
1: our nonprofit organizations out of the
2: principal's office, right? right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. So some of those permanent records, I mean, these are going to go back to the very basics of when that organization was actually even founded. So once you create a nonprofit and you actually apply for exempt status with IRS, you have to submit a document, either a 1023 or a 1024, and that's called your exemption application. That becomes one of your key permanent records. That's something that you have to maintain for forever because if someone ever asks to see it, it's something that you have to make available. So that's one of your key permanent records because that's the basis for why IRS said you could even be an exempt organization in the first place. So if you don't have that on hand, then nobody really knows, you know, well, why, what are you supposed to be doing? What can you be doing? So it's a lot of great guidance for um, even new development people as they come into an organization. You could go back and look at that document, too, to be able to say, well, that's not what we told IRS we were going to do. And if that's too much of a deviant from what we told them in the very beginning, then maybe we need to reconsider whether or not it's within our mission. So that's why that document is really important to be able to have on hand for future reference, not only from an internal perspective, but for external folks that ask to see it.
0: So now, what, now my, what if your nonprofit is, you know, 100 years old and that paper is long gone, maybe it got put in some box and some box and some box and you have no
2: idea where it is. Sure. So what dep- do you do? depending on what type of organization you were, if you were, if you were too old, you wouldn't have had that particular exemption application to deal with. So you probably have a, a state charter or something that your state can actually help you obtain. But if you did have a, an exemption application that was filed and you've just gone through a lot of board changes, you can actually file um, a form with the IRS. And it's called a 4506-A, and you can get a duplicate copy of that exemption application. Um, in conjunction with that, your IRS determination letter, which is the letter the IRS issues you after you file your exemption application. And that's a letter that says you've been granted exempt status. You can also get a copy of that if you don't have it by filing that same form, that 4506A. So that's already we're embedding a lot of us two do- lose things. Right, exactly. And a lot of times there's board overlap or board changes, and so when you've got, you know, maybe somebody leaves and nobody's really sure where all those permanent records went, you at least have some option to try to get them back into a new permanent record system. So then what else do we need to have in that permanent record? Sure. So with your, before you could have ever done any of the exemption application, you have to actually legally set up your organization with your state. So the Secretary of State for your state in which you're incorporated, you would have filed articles of incorporation. And so you want to keep that as part of your permanent records as well. Um, If you can't find your your attorney's drafted copy, you usually can download a copy from your State Secretary of State's website. Um, Missouri does a nice job with having all that information online through their website. I'm pretty sure Illinois does the same. So if you don't see it available through the state's online portal, you can usually contact the states and try to get a copy of that document as well. Internally, okay. uh, you may have also created bylaws when you were setting up the organization. And uh, that would give you, um, so your bylaws would tell you, you know, how you're supposed to be operating and what you're supposed to be doing. That's another document that you would want to keep in those permanent files as well.
1: The thing that always confuses me with bylaws is you have, these are the ways that you are supposed to operate your organization. And it tells you kind of the basic rules and regulations of how you're going to operate. Right. Who is responsible for governing the bylaws? Is it the board? Is it the president and CEO? Is it a combination of both? Does it depend on how your bylaws are written? It can
2: depend on how the bylaws are written, which is a great point. Typically, it's the board of directors because that's the governing body of the organization. Um, but your bylaws may say who has, Uh, your bylaws should say who has the ability to amend the articles and how changes can be made. So you do really have to pay attention to all the clauses and articles that are in the bylaws because it might state, you know, some that are very strict and they don't really want a lot of changes will say at least a 75% vote to positively change those bylaws. So it is you do want to pay attention to what the document specifically says, but typically it is the board of directors responsible for governing and making sure that they're complied with. So that
1: I would think that one of the things you'd want to do if you were orienting a new board member was to make sure that they had a copy
2: of the bylaws and to review those with them and ask any que- answer any questions they Absolutely. might have. Absolutely, yeah, it's a great idea to have. You know, some organizations put together a board book for onboarding new board members, and that's going to be way outside the scope of what we'll talk about today. But that's a great thing to have in there is the the bylaws and your articles of incorporation, as well as any internal policies that they're expected to comply with.
0: I have one more question about bylaws before we move on to policies. How important is it to keep every version of the bylaws that ever was? Because I know a lot of boards do <laughs> make changes frequently. Do do we need to keep every every version of it, or maybe just the first and the last? That's a great question. It, it is, is a really, really
2: good question. Technically, you're supposed to keep all versions that are the amendments, because if you um, if you actually ever have an audit, they will want to see all copies. Um, what some people will do, if, especially if the bylaws are just so substantial um, that it's a very long document, they might keep just a notation summary of the things that changed rather than the full document. So they might say iteration one that was dated 1-1-2016 uh, had these items that were amended. So that might be a way to not have to keep the full set of documents every time there's an amendment, but it is ideal to keep all versions in your permanent files. That way there's no question if somebody acted within the appropriate guidelines at a specific time frame. Okay. Okay, so
0: let's go on to policies. What policies do we, should we have and what should we be following them? Sure.
2: So with policies, the, the most important thing is that if you have them, you need to follow them. Because if you have an internal policy and you don't follow it, it's basically saying that you don't have a policy at all. So some of the more common policies, and this comes from um, just your 990 filing, because you have to answer affirmatively yes or no, whether you have them would be a conflict of interest policy, a compensation policy, uh, a whistleblower protection policy, um, a document retention and destruction policy. Uh, oftentimes if a if a nonprofit has um, – Funds that are available for investment, they'll set an investment policy. Um, And organizations, as they get larger, will also set more operational policies, such as who can sign checks, uh, what their expenditure limits are on signing checks, and who can spend how much money without having board approval and things like that. So there's there's a lot of internal policies you could have. Most organizations like to focus on having that conflict of interest compensation in the whistleblower and documentation policies because they are asked about on their 990 filing. And since that's open to public inspection, they like to follow, quote, the best practices and have those things available if somebody should ask if they have them.
1: Is there any place that you're aware of that we can go and get samples of any of these types of things in case someone's going back and saying, you know, reviewing their particular policies and finding that perhaps
2: there's a shortfall in wherever they'd like to add additional policies? Sure. And actually, we do have, we internally through Brown-Smith-Wallace have a a documentation retention and destruction policy and we can make that available. Well, good. Um, In all honesty, there's tons of of policies out if you just (laughs) go Google them and say, you know, nonprofit sample conflict of interest policy. There's actually one on IRS's website that they uh, reference when you're actually applying for exempt status. Because if you have a policy in place, they want you to supply that when you apply for your exempt status before they grant you your exemption. So you can find all sorts of options for sample policies, even just available on the web with no charges. So obviously, you want to be a little careful when you do just a blanket search like that. But for the most part, you can find some great tools that are samples and templates. Great. So maybe what we'll do is for our
1: listeners, we'll get the sample from Brown Smith Wallace that sure. you mentioned. We'll put that in our show notes and have that available for them. Perfect. That'd be great. Fantastic. What about uh, board and committee meeting minutes? I always hear conflicts from different nonprofits who say, well, we have to have our board minutes, but our committee minutes, meaning the committees of the board, not right, not our ad hoc Committees that come up and say, you know, we're going to have a Christmas party for our staff. Right. Like, you know, official right. committee minutes. Oh, we don't need official minutes for those. And I had other people who say, no, you have to have both, and they both have to be approved based on their bylaws.
2: And so, what is your what is your take on this? It, it is a mis- it's a it's a messy little situation because you do need to have those board minutes, the committee meeting minutes. Again, it comes up on the IRS 990 form. It says there's a question that asks you, do you keep minutes? So if you keep them, you want to obviously follow your policies that you're doing them, you're getting them approved by the next board meeting and and all of that, whatever your policies are internally. Um, Board minutes. Absolutely. Those you have to have. That's just part of good governance. So oftentimes what comes into play is that committee meeting minutes are deemed to be underneath the best practice, same as the board minutes. So while some folks say they're not maybe as important, it's still a best practice to go ahead and have those because, again, it's going to answer any questions as to who gave authority to do something or whether or not something actually was granted authority and who gave that authority to make sure that nobody, you know, oversteps their bounds. So... Committee meetings, you know, you could probably go one or one or two ways on it, but best practice, you'd go. I would recommend having them. Now, Marjorie, I'm curious.
1: So, when you are looking at board minutes, who takes board minutes for your organization? Is it the secretary of the board, or is it the CEO?
0: Yeah, for for us, it's the secretary because Mm -hmm. let me tell you, if the uh, CEO did it in our organization, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, wouldn't have minutes. (laughs) They'd be very Um, short (laughs) because I've heard both depending on the nonprofit. Yeah. I see I don't know how a CEO takes them because honestly no. I'm so busy paying attention to who's promising what and who's telling me they're gonna do this. <laughs> it's something you don't necessarily want in the minutes, but like all these side conversations that are also happening that in my notes is everything that I've promised to have done that I don't I don't know how I would have time to do minutes to. So now I always go back and look at the secretary's minutes to make sure that her version of the conversation is the same as my version of the conversation. And then if it's not, we talk about it. But you know, because and I think it's good to have two eyes on that. But yeah, definitely, I think a board secretary and on committees too. Committee members should be taking responsibility for that. Um, I always say that it's a staff's job to enable the volunteers to do the mission, and you know that's that's certainly part of part of that.
1: And I would think as a best practice, at the very least, if you have a staff member, whether that be a a designated staff member or um, a CEO or whoever it might be, Mm -hmm. that they're the ones taking the minutes, that the secretary should be signing off and approving those minutes.
2: Correct. I
1: would agree with that. Good. I would agree. So let's talk, let's dive into something else that I think that I know I get a lot of questions about. I know, Marjorie, you and I spend a lot of time just talking about the things that come up with regards to records and what we need to keep and what we need to do when it comes to fundraising. Because I think this is where I see the the most loosey goosey work you might do. I don't know sure. if that's an official term, but I'm going to use <laughs> we, it. We can make it official. Thank now. you. <laughs> uh, where they say, well, we we do it like this and we do it like that, and I want to get to the, really going back to the, going back to basics, right? right? How do we make sure we're covering our bases as a nonprofit organization? So one of the big hangups I always see is fundraising events, and I know that Marjorie, that's your favorite events are so much fun. And you love doing (laughs) them. (laughs) But there's so much that goes into it. So walk me through with regards to what do we need to, what do we need to be careful about when we're talking about uh, covering our bases and fundraising?
2: Sure, absolutely. So those fundraising events, you know, the biggest thing to keep in mind is that they are special events. So they're not directly related to the mission of an organization. So they exist to create more funding. So what organizations like to realize is that we're creating an opportunity to bring in a lot of money and bring in a lot of awareness for the mission of the organization so that they have the funds available to be spent on, you know, carrying out different program activities or creating new positions and things like that. So one of the most important things that you can do, and this comes down to that 990 filing, again, that Schedule G. You want to have a contract in place for anybody that you hire as a professional fundraiser. So having that contract in place for anybody that's paid to professionally solicit for your organization is a must. Um, and that's something that you absolutely need to keep and and have available and, you know, have all those details fine-tuned. Now, are you talking about a third party? Third party. Okay,
1: so if we have someone on our staff who is that, that's not what we're talking about. Not
2: necessarily. Okay. Now, if you hire a grant writer, though, mm-hmm. that is maybe... Uh, hired solely to do specific fundraising for, you know, a set time frame or a, a specific event, that potentially could be included in this. So under contractual agreement. Under contractual agreement, okay. right, because it's going to answer any questions as to who has the authority to do what. So specifically, when we think about that Schedule G for the 990, it looks at it's more designed for the professional fundraisers where they're doing maybe telecom calls, um, who has the authority to do to actually collect the money and then who's getting the money turned over to the nonprofit. So the specifics of those contracts really govern, um, you know, who has what responsibilities. So it's very important to have those contracts available mm-hmm. so that way you can answer those questions correctly on that Schedule G. Uh, the more common piece for Schedule G for most nonprofits though is the second section which is talking about all of your actual events that you have. So. Oftentimes, folks think, oh, well, I've got everything recorded from an accounting perspective, but everything that you really need to be able to answer the Schedule G properly is probably outside your general ledger system. It's going to be outside uh, of the the bookkeeping piece. You want to talk with development and make sure that they're aware that total money coming in, your gross receipts, has to be tracked separately for each event and then you have to be able to identify the charitable portion out of those gross receipts, so that you can come down to your gross income for each event. So well, that,
0: well, let's back up. What is the charitable portion? So the chari- like, is that all
2: the money I get, or not necessarily? So that? your so gross receipts is all the money that came in for that event. The charitable portion usually gets backed into because the one item that you probably know out of those three is gross income. Gross income is typically the fair market value of what people receive for coming to the event. So take, for instance, you know, a normal um, gala with an auction or a, a gala that has dinner and music. So when you have that event, you're telling folks that out of their $300 ticket that they purchased, the fair value of, the entertainment and the meal and the ambiance for the night is $150. So then you would know that that gross income piece is $150. Your charitable portion is $150 to make up your total gross receipts of $300. So it's kind of a, it's a mathematical equation, which is where the accountants have a lot of fun and the development folks scratch their heads and say, what are you talking about? So the biggest important (laughs) thing. We need $300. (laughs) Right, exactly. We need $300. You tell us that you figure it out later accounting. Um, so the biggest thing to really keep in mind is when you're trying to figure that gross income piece is it's the fair market value disclosure, not cost. Because how many times do you go to an event where the food's donated or the band plays for free? So the, the nonprofit might not have an outright cost for hosting the event, but the people that attended did have a fair market value that they received for attending. So you have to realize, and this will get, I think later we're going to talk a little bit about uh, acknowledgments. And so this comes into those quid pro quo uh, donor acknowledgment letters whereby you say, you gave me $300 in this case, and we gave you something of value of $150. You have to disclose that fair value to those donors when they make those ticket purchases
1: so what are those categories because here's the argument i always hear well we only have to give them what they actually consumed and so the food is all we have to really the food and beverage is all we have to give them but i know better mm-hmm. so let's go over that because we might blow some people's minds today sure. what are the actual things that must be deducted from an event like that to be able to give fair market value what are those main topics
2: well the main ones like you said are going to be your food and beverages if you get any swag gifts or gift bags um I've got some organizations that give gift certificates to people that attend. So, you know, that's going to come out of that fair value. So like a favor that we would give everybody. Yep. And that could really, between those two items, you could wipe out their charitable piece entirely. So if you think about golf outings, a lot of times when you register for a golf event, you might pay $150 per per person to, to golf. But if the golf fees are normally $100 per person and you're giving them a gift bag full of, you know, swag of some sort, you could really wipe out and say they have no charitable contribution value at all by coming to the golf event. I've seen, so that. I've seen that happen to yeah, uh, other organizations and their mind is just blown by it, right? right. They, they scratch their heads on that really strongly. <laughs> so food and beverage favor. What about like decorations, flowers, that sort of thing? Not necessarily. I mean, it's, it's usually a direct benefit back to the participants. So okay. if they enjoyed music and you would normally have to pay... $50 for a ticket to, to see this particular person perform, then you would include that as part of the fair value. Um, so food, beverage, entertain any type of entertainment, um, and then any favors that they receive as a direct benefit. Really, you look at those direct benefits that they're able to either absorb or take away from, from participating in the event. Okay. Those Excellent. are the main.
1: Those are good. Yeah. So let's dive into, you teased it, let's dive into those contribution acknowledgement sure. letters. So where,
2: when, when is a letter required? So a donor cannot deduct anything if they don't have contemporaneous uh, acknowledgement in regards to their donation. We're what does non- that mean for everybody else? Lumis <laughs> <little Contemporaneous> CPA. <laughs> contemporaneous means that it has to be timely, <laughs> and acknowledgement means that there's got to be something in writing from uh, an organization. If it's under two hundred fifty dollars the donor, the person that gave the money, does not have to have anything from the nonprofit. Where they get into some trouble sometimes as if it's $250 or more, that's when they need the charity to actually take action and issue that acknowledgement letter. So there's there's been a lot of scrutiny by IRS over the past year, two years, three years even on these letters. So there's specific things that have to be in those letters. So, oh, good. I'm
1: going to write these yes, down. Go ahead. Exactly.
2: So like we said, it has to be contemporaneous, which means that in general, it should probably be issued by January 31st each year. If if it's not issued by January 31st, the donor has to have it either by the due date or by the time they file their tax return. Otherwise, it's no longer considered timely. Um, but the things that have to be in that letter are more important. It has to include the name of the organization, mm-hmm. the amount of cash contribution that they gave, if the individual gave a non-cash item, meaning they donated something for the auction or, you know, they gave a, a desk for use at the, the organization's facilities, it has to include a description of the non-cash item. It should not, cannot, will not, do not include a value by the donee organization. That is something that is the responsibility of the donor to assign. And if it's too high of a dollar amount, then the donor is going to come back to the nonprofit and say, hey, I need your help signing off on a letter so I can attach it to my personal tax return. But those are a little bit farther fewer be, between. But the, the most important thing to remember there is that if you get a non-cash contribution, the nonprofit that received it should never assign a, a value. They should only describe what they received. It's the $5,000, dollars is then Once you right. get past that
1: $5,000 yep. limit. So I can see some of our nonprofits who maybe get artwork Absolutely. where this would, would come into play. Yep. Um, if they, someone received a large amount of office equipment or computer technology that was given where that would come into play, and really at that point, once you hit that $5,000 threshold, the individual typically knows that they need to have some sort of tax documentation. Right. Their financial advisors advise them of that uh, as, long, as long as they have a, a third-party um, audit Appraisal that's done and that's appraised yep. it and such. So uh, by all means, if you have someone who is considering that, really encourage them to talk to, talk to their financial advisors about what they need uh, and how that you can help support that documentation. Right,
2: absolutely. Now, the only thing that doesn't cover from the non-cash piece would be publicly traded stocks, those are treated as cash, so we wouldn't right. have to worry about those. But the most important thing about this letter um, is that it should also include a statement that no goods or services were provided, assuming that's true. Now, right?
1: Can we put that in three-point font at the bottom of no. a letter? Because I know no organizations that like to do it. No. You not wanna- and Marjorie's <laughs> and not mine. I'm just
0: saying.
2: I've seen it happen. I know,
1: Marjorie, you not have too. Not Yeah. No. You, you do need to
0: keep
2: that's any disclosures. That's dis- handy for the donor. Right. <laughs> right. Now, any disclosures about fair market value of any goods or services received do need to be in the same size font as the, the rest of the acknowledgment. So, it's readily seen and, it, you know, we're not trying to hide anything. So, if there was no goods or services provided, we state that. If there was only intangible religious benefits received, we state that. And if there was something of value exchanged, we have to state a fair value of what that uh, what that item actually was. All good things, yeah. excellent. But that's where you can get a great reference for that is IRS Publication seventeen seventy one. And I don't know if maybe that's something we want to make available, but that has a, a great reference for these items, and uh, it's a great way for for organizations to stay in tune with what we're. With what their acknowledgement requirements actually are. That's great, Marjorie. We'll get that in the show notes as well, won't we?
0: Ex- absolutely. Um, now, I think I think we are almost out of time, um, Jen, I, I hope that you come back and talk to us a little bit more about some other stuff. I know that we a lot of stuff here we didn't get a chance to. But you know, nonprofits exist to fulfill a public good. They're run by people that are passionate about their cause. Um, I know documentation may seem to be a burden without benefit. But like we were talking about, that lack of that documentation can be really detrimental to a nonprofit's ability to exist. Right, Natalie?
1: I agree. And, you know, the news media frequently highlights cases where inadequate documentation or compliance with internal policies or best practices have really been the demise of a nonprofit organization. So I'm hoping that our listeners today will realize they don't want to be next They don't want to be the next headline, right? So cover your bases. And that was really what we wanted to accomplish today. Hey, Jen, thanks for joining us today. I want to know because I'm sure that everyone's going to want to know how they can learn more about these important topics uh, like the things that we covered today. And I know that we just scratched the surface. but. Where do they go next? How can they learn more besides just a, a course that Marjorie are gonna and I are going to try to get you to come back on our show? <laughs> Perfect.
2: Well, uh, I appreciate so that. Where can they go next? Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, one great thing about Brownsmith Wallace is that we really focus on serving the nonprofits as an industry. So what we do is we actually host a quarterly nonprofit speaker series to help nonprofit organizations stay informed on various topics. Um, we actually have a session coming up here at the end of August. It's October, or uh, yes, yeah, August thirty first. Um you'll get one free hour of C P E. Come join us for breakfast. Um we'd love for you to come and hear about this topic which is called circumvent the storm. Um like I said it's August thirty first, seven fifteen AM in the morning. So if if anybody's in the Rise iceberg, and shine. Right. Right. <laughs> But like we've talked about, nonprofits face unique financial considerations and operational challenges. So what Tony Munz in our advisory service practice is going to do is help organizations identify those vulnerabilities and hopefully try to mitigate some of those risks, so that you're not so exposed, and that you know maybe you don't become the next breach in the news or subject to ransomware or you don't have data security issues. So Tony's going to hopefully help address some of those ideas um, and help. The current generation of nonprofits circumvent the storm of all of those vulnerabilities. Great. We'll get that information
1: on our Facebook page. Perfect. I appreciate you being here.
2: Absolutely. And Jen, where can we,
0: what's a good way for our listeners to connect with you if they want more information?
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, you can find us on our website, which is bswllc.com. Um, you can also search me out on LinkedIn. Um, I'm pretty active on the LinkedIn environment, so that'd be a great way to connect as well. Great. We'll get those attached to our Facebook page as well. Thanks so much,
1: Jen. All right. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you for joining us on 501 Crossroads. (laughs) 501 Crossroads is recorded at the studios of Minds Eye Radio and is produced and hosted by me, Natalie Jablonski. And me, Marjorie Moore. Mike Curtis is our sound engineer. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite app. Make sure you subscribe and leave us some feedback so others can find us and we know what you want to hear about. Thanks, Jen, for being here with us. And remember, you can find us on Facebook at 501 Crossroads. Thank you for listening. And remember, we are all working towards the same outcomes.